Howdy. What's going on? Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. It is heard live every day, by the way, from noon until 3 on WBT Radio in Charlotte. And if you want exclusive content, invitations to events, the weekly live stream, my daily show prep with links, become a patron. Go to the PeteCallanerShow.com. This podcast is also supported by North Carolina businesses, so please consider supporting them. Try not to skip through their short ad. Make sure you hit the subscribe button to get every episode for free right to your smartphone or tablet. And thanks so much for your support. All righty, so let's talk about the federal Leviathan and uh, its potential dismantling. I'm so excited. Well, so that means it's probably not going to happen, but there's a chance. You're telling me there's a chance. The U.S. Supreme Court heard a case from some fishermen, and this could unwind some of the federal bureaucratic power that has just, you know, reached out into every area of our lives. Have you ever heard of the Chevron deference or Chevron standard or the Chevron case? Right. It's about those little square things with the pointy bottoms that people wear on their no, I'm kidding. It's a no Chevron USA. It was the company is the company. I guess they're still around, right? They're still around gas company, oil company. It goes back to a 1984 opinion when Justice John Paul Stevens, famously of the Beatles, um, where uh, he issued his 1984 opinion in the U.S. Supreme Court in Chevron versus National Resources Defense Council and Stevens started what legal scholar Gary Lawson calls, quote, nothing less than a bloodless constitutional revolution. A bloodless constitutional revolution. Thomas Boyd, writing at the New York Post, says, at long last, the Supreme Court heard two cases that may signal the beginning of the end to that revolution. Article 1 of the Constitution explicitly directs, quote, All legislative power herein granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States. It does not say regulatory agencies, executive branch offices. No, it it is in the legislative branch. It is in Congress. Justice Stevens' opinion found that, quote, agencies may properly rely upon the incumbent administration's views of wise policy and then reasonably define statutory ambiguities. Okay? Properly rely upon the incumbent administration. So in other words, the current president. So if you have an administration and they have a different view than the previous administration on a particular regulatory regime or policy, right, Wise policy to the, the the current president and his staff, that should rule the day. If the law is ambiguous, then let the bureaucrats decide. By the way, this issue is also tied to all of the uh, the transgender bathroom issue. Because the way that the, uh, the various government agencies, you know, uh, redefine and uh, understand and re-understand and redefine, right? The way they, they go about their rules under the various titles 
that govern schools and public places, public accommodation law and such. And so depending on the administration, rules change. Which, of course, creates chaos in everyone's daily lives because that's how it affects us because now you've got these organizations that are trying to comply with you know, or schools or institutions or businesses that are trying to comply with a, a, a reinterpretation of an existing statute that was, you know, perceived and understood and defined differently under the previous administration and all administrations prior to that. So essentially, you could have every four years or every eight years this flip-flopping, you know, redefining and reinterpreting various laws because Congress just says, you know, the secretary... Uh, of health and human services shall define blah, 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 like we got with Obamacare, where, what was it, hundreds or thousands of mentions? You know, the DHHS secretary shall determine. And so they just turn it all over to the executive branch. And that means they are essentially writing law. Which, by the way, the left loves when they're in control, by the way. When they're in control... They love to write law at the executive branch level, just like when they control a particular courtroom or uh, or a bench with a majority of judges. Right. Then they love writing law from the bench. Judicial activism. Right. They love doing that. And then, of course, when Republicans or conservatives are in charge, they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. We know you shouldn't be you shouldn't be striking laws down or upholding them based on the Constitution. You have to, it's a living, breathing document. You got to reinterpret it all the time. And by that, we mean, you know, reinterpret the old rules to change so they now comport with our views currently. Living, breathing document, blah, blah, blah. So the legal doctrine that Chevron spawned became known as Chevron deference. You defer, right? You rely on this Chevron case. And uh, a guy named Peter Wallison, former. President Ronald Reagan's White House counsel, so lawyer, pointed to this one decision as the, quote, single most important reason the administrative state has continued to grow out of control. Forty years of regulatory and judicial tumult has ensued, finally reaching its crescendo with these two cases brought by fishermen that have compelled the Supreme Court to now finally intervene. The two cases... Uh, that are combined, uh, Loper Bright Enterprises, Loper Bright Enterprises, they just refer to it as Bright, um, versus Raimondo, which I think that was the stand-up comic who got his own sitcom with his parents who lived across the street. Everybody Loves Raimondo, I think was the name of it. Anyway, that's the one case, Bright versus Raimondo, and then the other one is Relentless versus Department of Commerce. And I think Relentless might be the name of the boat. Both, oh, sorry, both of these are companies, so Relentless is a company, but also a great name for for a plaintiff in a lawsuit that refuses to give up, you know? So both of these companies fish for herring. I don't know if they're going after red herring, which seems like a waste of time, but whatever. They go after herring in New England and are family-owned and operated, and both of them are subject to the Magnuson-Stevens Act. Do I need to explain what the Magnus? I mean, we all know what the Magnus and Stevenson Act is, right? I mean, we. Okay, well, all right. So, all right. Just because our K-12 education system is not teaching kids to read, they may not have actually read about the Magnus and Stevens Act. So here, I will tell you, it governs fishery management 
in federal waters. Okay? It's about fishing. The act allows the National Marine Fisheries Service, or the NMFS, to require these herring boats, which are pretty small boats. They carry like five to six people. But it requires them, or I should say the National Marine Fisheries Service requires them, not the Magnus and Stevens Act, because it was too ambiguous. So along comes this federal agency, and they're like, you know what? You got to put a federal person, you got to put an agent on your boat. Again, the boats only hold five to six people. And that agent on every boat is there to monitor, to enforce regulations. And then, without any statutory authorization, the NMFS decided to require Loper Bright and Relentless, both of these companies, not just to have the agents on their boat, but also to pay their salaries. They're set, they, these guys, these federal agents are making like $710 a day, which is like, you know, producer Bernie money over there. That's a, $700 a day. And that exceeds the profits from a single day's fishing. Every day they're losing money because an agency requires them to put an agent on their boats to monitor that they're complying with the law. And they had no legislative approval to do this. There's no law that says they can do that. So that's the heart of this case. I have a bit of audio from Paul Clement, who argued uh, for, uh, I believe he was arguing for Loper Bright or Relentless. I forget, but one of the companies, he was, he, he was the lawyer. And this guy's, he's, he's argued in front of the Supreme Court many, many, many times. Uh, you're going to want to hear this soundbite. There's a, uh, an email from John to Pete at thepetecalendarshow.com regarding, uh, well, he says it's the Looper case. It's the Loper Bright Enterprises, or Bright, versus Raimondo and Relentless versus Department of Commerce. Um, it is completely outrageous that a federal agent is making $710 a day to observe fishing vessels. Completely outrageous. On a side note, how do I apply for that position? It's a fair question. All right, here's Paul Clement arguing in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. I don't want to be seen as running away from the stare decisis factors, because I'm happy to walk through all of them, because I think all of them cut in our favor. The decision is tremendously unworkable. Nobody knows what ambiguity is. Even my learned friend on the other side says there's no formula for it, and that's an elaboration on what the government said the last time up here, which is that nobody knows what ambiguity means. But that's just workability. Let's talk about reliance. I talked about the Brand X problems, which are very serious problems. And, like, I love the Brand X case because broadband regulation provides a perfect example of the flip-flop that can happen, but it's not my only example. There are amicus briefs that talk about the National Labor Relations Board flip-flopping on everything. Ask the Little Sisters about stability and reliance interests as their fate changes from administration to administration. It is a, it is a disaster. That's a great point. The Little Sisters of the Poor, remember? They didn't want to, was it about abortion? They didn't want to... Um, they didn't want to, uh, they didn't want any kind of, uh, to, to be a part of abortion related services. And so when the Biden administration took over, Biden being the good Catholic that he is, you know, he made the little sisters, the Catholic organization, right. Engage in these, these behaviors that they didn't want to engage in. Um, I'll pick it back up there, but I don't have time to finish the rest of the clip, but we'll, we'll finish that after the news. 
But regarding the uh, amicus brief, there have been more than 65 amicus or amicus, depending on uh, what part of the Latin uh, country you are from. Uh, it, well, just different dialects, you know, amicus or amicus. It may be Greek. I don't know. It's all the same to me. Anyway, 65 friend of the court briefs. That's what those are, right? So you're not a party to the case, but you got an opinion about it, right? It's like sending an email to me. Like, I got an opinion about this thing, Pete, so I'm going to send it to you. That's what this amicus brief is. Uh, there were 65 of them filed in this case, which is a lot. And it might be fitting. Get this. The court's ruling on the future of Chevron's deference, the Chevron deference standard, could actually come down on June 25th, which would be 40 years to the day it was created. Oh, I just got goosebumps. All right. Do the current world events have you wondering whether we are teetering on the edge of catastrophe? Are you concerned it's going to reach our shores? Okay. So what are you doing about your concerns? Let me help. Carolina Readiness Supply at carolinareadiness.com. Whether you're looking to expand your emergency preparedness supplies or you have no idea where to even begin, Carolina Readiness Supply can help you. Food, water purifiers, tools, first aid kits, instructional materials, camping and hiking supplies even because being prepared is just smart carolina readiness supply has 2,000 square feet of supplies and educational materials that you'll need for any kind of emergency in waynesville and always at carolinareadiness.com veteran owned carolina readiness supply will you be ready when the lights go out talking about the chevron deference there are two cases they kind of got rolled into one uh and they appeared in front of the u.s supreme court and uh, oral arguments were made as opposed to, I guess, like nonverbal arguments where they would, like, I don't know, do charades or something. But they uh, they delivered their arguments. And one of the uh, lawyers in the case, Paul Clement, who has appeared before the Supreme Court many, many times, and he's really good. And he's defending uh, one of the fishing companies that is required to put a federal agent on their boat in order to monitor whether or not these herring fishermen are complying with the law, with the regulations. There's no actual law that says a federal agent has to be on the boats, let alone that the boat has to pay for that agent to be on the boat. But that's what the government, the federal agencies have determined at a cost of over $700 per day per agent, which is more than the fishing company makes in a day. So the federal government is basically putting these fishermen out of business. So here's Paul Clement arguing about, um, well, he's attacking various aspects of what the uh, the federal government lawyer, uh, what's her name, uh, Pergola or something? Uh, I don't remember. But um, what, her arguments, and he's just going boom, 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 just shooting it all down. And uh, he's talking about like reliance, reliability, He's saying you can't rely on uh, any kind of consistent application of the law because the agencies using this Chevron deference, which is a case from 40 years ago in a Chevron lawsuit, and the Supreme Court ruled, John Paul Stevens wrote the opinion, and he said, look, you know, if the law is ambiguous, the federal agency can then sort of fill in the blanks and they can they can write where there is ambiguity. But nobody can define ambiguity. So it has just allowed the federal agencies to run roughshod over every industry and sector in America for four decades. 
It has been incredibly damaging. So here's Clement. I'm going to pick this up. It runs about two minutes. But this is awesome. And then you get to the real world effects on citizens that Justice Gorsuch alluded to. But I'd like to emphasize its effect on Congress, because honestly, I think when the court was originally doing Chevron, it was looking only at a comparison between Article 2 and Article 3 and who's better at resolving these hard questions. I think it got even that question wrong, but it failed to think about the the incentives it was giving the Article 1 branch. And that's what 40 years of experience has shown us. And 40 years of experience has shown us that it's virtually impossible to legislate on meaningful issues, major questions, if you will, because right right now, roughly half of the people in Congress at any given point are going to have their friends in the executive branch. So their choice on a controversial issue is compromise and forge a long-term solution at the cost of maybe getting a primary challenger, or instead, just call up your buddy who used to be your co-staffer in the executive branch now and have him give everything on your wish list based on a broad statutory term. And my friends asked for empirical evidence. I think you just have to look at this court's docket. It's been one major rule after another. It hasn't been one major statute after another. I would have thought Congress might have addressed student loan forgiveness if that were really such an important issue to one party in in, in Congress. I would have thought maybe they would have fixed the, the eviction moratorium. I could go on and on on these issues. They don't get addressed because Chevron makes it so easy for them not to tackle the hard issues and forge a permanent solution. My friends on the other side also talk about, you know, this is, this is great because it leads to uniformity in the law. Well, I don't think that's an end in itself. Again, if it were up to me, if, we're, if we think uniformity is so great, let's have uniformity and let's have the thumb on the scale inside of the citizen. But the reality is the kind of uniformity that you get under Chevron is something only the government could love because every court in the country has to agree on the current administration's view of a debatable statute. You don't get the kind of uniformity that you actually want, which is a stable decision that says this is what the statute means. Bingo. It's not stable. And if it is, it's in the favor of the federal government at the expense of the American citizens. And also his point, like all of these cases that you're hearing in the Supreme Court docket, these are all about interpretations of the rules, not law, but rules Rules that the federal government at the direction of Joe Biden, right, that they're stretching, they're pushing the envelope, they're stretching the bounds of what the laws say because the agents in these executive uh, branch organizations have written rules, rewritten rules, reinterpreted rules in order to give Biden the win that he cannot get legislatively. Once again, it's another end run around the legislative body. And so if you've got people, and by the way, Congress knows this too, right? Both parties do. They're going to know this. So why bother trying to do the heavy lifting of getting some sort of legislation through, some sort of bipartisan legislation? Because as soon as you, if you cut some sort of a bipartisan deal, you're going to get attacked from inside your own party. You're going to get attacked from the other party. Right? Everybody involved is going to be labeled traitors and stuff. So where's the incentive there? The incentive is, as he said, call up your buddy that you used to work with in the, some congressional staffer's office, or maybe you were both working at a federal agency together, and now you're working for a congressman, or you're working in the executive branch, you're working for Biden. And so you just call up your old pal at the EPA and be like, hey, why don't you adopt 
some of these standards. Remember those standards that everybody wants? Yeah, have, oh, everybody and like on one side of the aisle wants it. Here you go. And then they just write them all up and they put them into the federal register. And now these are the rules. Like, well, that's not, that's not the way that's supposed to go, but that's the easier way to do it. That's where the incentives are. See, when, when, once you start looking at it from this perspective, like who, who has incentives to do this versus that decision? What are the incentives? How do they align here? The core of this case is that if a federal rule is challenged in court, the court should defer to the agency and its reasonable interpretation of the congressional statute that it says grants them permission to create the rule. It's a deference, or the Chevron doctrine, they call it sometimes. Mark Chenoweth is president of the New Civil Liberties Alliance. I assume they kind of sprouted up after the ACLU just became a a, a mouthpiece and house organ for the uh, Democrat Party. But he said overruling Chevron is overdue. Many administrative state pathologies can be traced to the malign influence that Chevron has in encouraging unlawful administrative power grabs. By putting this genie back in the bottle, the Supreme Court can restore federal court oversight to ensure that agencies execute the law as Congress wrote it. The uh, Justice Department arguing to keep Chevron deference in place, Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelogar. 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 Prelogar, Prelogar, anyway, not Pergola, sorry about that. Um, She said that overruling Chevron would be a convulsive shock to the legal system. (gasps) No. Is it any more of a shock to the system than, say, I don't know, a fisher boat, a a fishing boat, rather, uh, forced to staff a federal agent at a cost greater than their daily profits? What do you think? Bigger shock? Business groups? In farm, timber, home building sectors, they're all signed on with the fishermen. Supreme Court has not applied Chevron in recent years, but lower courts continue to rely on it, which has obviously caused confusion and inconsistency in the law. So uh, they uh, they heard these oral arguments. They anticipate um, a, an opinion sometime uh, around June, and that lines up for maybe on the 40th anniversary of the Chevron decision, maybe it is finally undone. And that would be fantastic. Piece at thefederalist.com by Jonathan Bronitsky. Bronitsky is the co-founder and CEO of Athos, a Washington, D.C.-based public relations firm and literary agency. And he says, as conservatives... If we are serious about reconstitutionalizing our system of government, or dare I say, decolonizing the government from Marxists. If we are serious about this, so that's the first, that's the first assumption we have to kind of clear, is, are we serious? I, well, actually, I guess the first one would be, you know, are we conservatives, right? Or are we populists? There's a difference. So, as conservatives... If you're serious about reconstitutionalizing our system of government, so there's, I guess, the second premise that we have to wrestle with is, are we serious about reconstitutionalizing the government? Well, then the next administration has to make 
slashing both the scope and scale of the executive branch, its highest priority. If we fail in that objective, any and all wins we secure the next time we win at the ballot box will be erased by the next Democrat administration. This is the problem with presidents ruling by executive order. Unless you think, because you're hypersensitive or something, like I'm talking about Trump, I am not. I'm talking about every president in my lifetime that has used executive orders increasingly so in the last 20 years, only to have them reversed as soon as that president uh, is term limited out, they lose a re-election or what have you, and then somebody from the other party comes in and undoes it. It goes both ways. That is not what uh, the executive branch should be doing to govern. The legislative branch has to be doing it. I think the one thing the framers did not think of really was a Congress that was willing to abdicate their power. They, that they found it preferable to just turn over their powers to the executive branch and instead focus on making TikTok videos and fundraising. He says it'll happen immediately and by executive order and other means as it did virtually on the first day of the Biden administration. Right. The next Democrat administration just will undo if Trump wins and he goes in, he does executive orders to fix stuff and fix everything. Democrats win in the next cycle and then they undo it all. The reality, he says, is that laws don't rule lives. Rules and regulations do. And they are practically devised out of whole cloth and implemented and enforced by unelected bureaucrats in virtually countless departments and agencies within the executive branch. That's why this case of the herring fishermen is so important. No red herring here. Or maybe, I don't know what kind of fish they actually catch, except they're herring. 